0: As I recall, and looking back on my notes, we should be in Judges chapter 10. We finished up with Gideon and the aftermath of Gideon. So let's pick it up in chapter 10 then. After Abimelech, for those of you who weren't here, Abimelech is the bastard son of Gideon. And as you remember, he killed 69 of his 70 brothers and assumed de facto. Kingship of the northern area until he himself was dispatched. So that's who we're talking about. After Abimelech, there arose to say in Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. Shamir, nobody is terribly sure where it is. The best guess that I have found is it's basically over here on the west side of Mount Ebal and Gerizim, west side of Shechem. But the map that I have that has it on there has got a question mark by it so not terribly sure. don't know anything about this judge other than what I just read. So verse 3, after him arose Air, a Gileadite who judged Israel twenty-two years and he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys And they had 30 cities, called Havoth-Jair, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. In Kaman, it's in Gilead, and he was a Gileadite, so that's probably where it is. I'm skipping through this because we're going to get to Jephthah in a minute, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Now one of the things that people get messed up all the time, myself very much included, is the difference between the Ammonites and the Amorites. And that's going to be fairly important tonight. The Ammonites and the Amorites are not the same, you can tell they're spelled differently. So we'll talk about them. In this map behind me, you see that Ammon is to the east of Gilead. And the area on this map that is Gilead is where the Amorites were, and Moses destroyed the Amorites as they were coming into the land before they crossed the Jordan under Joshua. So the Ammonites and the Amorites are right next to each other. They sound alike, but understand that the Ammonites are farther east and the Amorites were up against the Jordan River north of the Arnon and south of the Jabba. Backing up to the Torah, if you remember the genealogy of the tribes of Israel, as they were getting ready to come out of the wilderness. Gilead is a descendant of Manasseh. You remember that when they divided the land, Reuben and Gad wanted to stay on the east side because that was good pasture land and they had lots of flocks and herds. So what Moses did is he took the tribe of Manasseh, which is a large tribe, and divided them between east and west across the Jordan, with the idea that tribal ties would help prevent the Jordan from becoming a barrier so that the tribes on the east separated from from Israel. And of course you remember in the book of Joshua after they conquered the land and they returned to the east side of the Jordan, they put up an altar on the Jordan River which almost caused a civil war The whole point of the altar, which they very quickly explained, was so that they would not become foreigners to the rest of Israel. So Manasseh goes across the Jordan from the Golan Heights today, across the north part of Central Mount, And they tie those two together. Anyway, Gilead is a descendant of Manasseh. So it's in the southern area of Manasseh, northern area of Gad, and he conquered I don't know how many cities and named them after himself. But the point is that the Ammonites are up against both Gad and Gilead, and Gilead is going to be the one that's going to have the major problem. So, verse 7 So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites which is in Gilead and again remember Amorites and Ammonites are two different ones the Amorites were the ones that were destroyed by Moses their king was Sihon so when he comes up he destroys Sihon and Og so when it talks about the land of the Amorites, those people no longer technically exist. Verse 9, And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was seriously distressed. Judah is south of the saddle of Benjamin. Benjamin is the tribe that is on the, the ridge. If you remember the blessings that Jacob gave to his sons, Ephraim gets the blessing of Abraham. Judah gets the blessing of rulership or kingship. Joseph, which is divided between Ephraim and Manasseh, since Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted by Jacob, that essentially gives Ephraim a double portion, which is the heritage of the firstborn. And of course, Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, who is Jacob's beloved wife, as opposed to Leah, who is the unfavored wife. So what you have is you have two big tribes. You've got Joseph and you've got Judah. And both of them aspire to rule. One of them, as I say, has the blessing of Abraham. The other one has the blessing of kingship. So Benjamin gets stuck in between those two tribes to keep them separated. And where Benjamin is located is in this area which is called the Saddle of Benjamin, oddly enough. And that is your major east-west line of communication between the Jordan River Valley and the plain on the Mediterranean side. So that's, to this day, a strategic piece of ground And whoever controls that controls the entire land of Israel. So rather than give it to Judah or to Ephraim, what God did is put Benjamin in between. So when the Ammonites are raiding to the west, as they are hitting Benjamin and they are hitting Judah, what they're doing is they are threatening that strategic piece of ground that controls north-south and east-west communication in Israel for everything south of the Jezreel Valley. So, all the way down to verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Moabites, oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned do to us whatever seems good to you only please deliver us this day so they put away the foreign gods from among them and serve the lord and he became impatient over the misery of israel so this obviously goes back to deuteronomy 30 i think it's 30 where moses prophesies that israel is going to go after other gods and they're going to cry out And one of the things that they're going to cry is none of this would have happened if God had been among us. And that is, God, we have a covenant with you. We're not keeping it, but God, you're supposed to keep your end of the bargain. And if you were keeping your end of the bargain, none of this would be happening. That kind of an attitude. They seem to have learned a little bit since then, but it's basically the same thing. So verse 17 Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So what they're obviously looking for is a commander. And this is where we start the story of Jephthah. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Several things, obviously. We have some number of legitimate sons, and we have the son of a prostitute. Didn't we just hear that, by the way? Abel-Melech was the illegitimate. uh, The Bible calls his mother a concubine. And since Gideon was judge over Israel, and Gideon lived in the Jezreel Valley, but the tabernacle and all of that stuff is in Shechem, He had to do business periodically in Shechem, and he picked himself up a lady there, and he would visit her when he went down to Shechem to do judge stuff. And she had one child, Abel Millick, who was not an heir. So the the children of a concubine don't inherit. They are not full wives in that sense. So we have a replay of what happened where the legitimate sons and the illegitimate sons are at odds. And in the case of Abimelech, he prevailed. In the case of Jephthah, who is Gilead's illegitimate son, he will prevail. So this is a map that is specific to the story we're reading. So I'm going to first off zoom in up here, and you can see where Tov is. And Tov is to the east of Ramoth gilead So when the sons of Gilead, the legitimate ones, got grumpy with Jeff And I think part of that, by the way, notice it says he's a mighty warrior. I think one of the reasons they ran him out is because they expected a replay of Abimelech, where Abimelech killed his brothers. Oh, by the way. This should remind you of another biblical character. How about David? Doesn't David get run out? And doesn't he go somewhere far away? And doesn't he gather a bunch of worthless fellows with him? Yeah, he does. He gathers a band of worthless fellows, and he sets up a protection racket in Judah. And his worthless fellows, if you will, are going up and collecting stuff during sheep shearing and all that kind of thing. So David, in many ways, will mirror what Jephthah does. 11.4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Now, I am assuming, and this is an assumption, it's not biblical, but I am assuming that the elders of Jabesh-Gilead are the descendants of Gilead that ran him out. That may or may not be true. So come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now, when you are in distress. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us to fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So what we have is sort of a replay of Abimelech, except Jephthah is in fact a pretty good guy, whereas Abimelech was not. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So he says, the only way I'm coming back is if you make me mayor, chief, county judge, whatever. He wants to be leader over it all. Verse 11, maybe? So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Mizpah simply means tower, by the way. So then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peacefully. Arnon and the Jabbok are two rivers that flow from east to west into the Jordan Valley. The Jabbok River is the place where Jacob met with the angels and wrestled with the angels when he came back out of Haran. So Jacob comes out of Haran, and the place where he wrestles with the angel is the Jabbok River Valley, and Mahanaim is the place where that happened. Mahanaim is a little town on the Jabbok River. One of the things about the Jabbok River is that it is fairly rough terrain, and it's the place where David will flee when his son runs him out of town. Because if you get up in there, it's just about impossible to get you out. And that's where the battles happen that his son, Absalom, is killed. That's also in that region. Now the Arnon River is south of the Jabbok. So the Arnon River actually runs into the Dead Sea where the Jabbok runs into the Jordan. So the Amorites had the land between the Arnon and the Jabbok. And you'll notice on the map, the Ammonites are to the east of that area. And in fact, before Israel came into the land, the Ammonites did used to own that land, but the Amorites were the ones that drove them out, not the Israelites. Prior to Israel getting the land, the Ammonites owned the area between the Arnon and the Jabbok. The Amorites drove them out sometime in the dim, distant past. So then when Moses came up, he ran the Amorites out, took the land for Gad, and then the Ammonites were to the east, which is where they always were. So now this Ammonite king wants that chunk of land back that was conquered two tribes ago. And that's the basis of his claim, by the way. So verse 14. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. Remember, the Arnon is a southern river on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, goes into the Dead Sea about halfway through. So verse 18 Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. The other side of the Arnon is the south side of the Arnon because they're coming up from the south. So they are south of this piece of land we're talking about. They camped on the other side of the Arnon but they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his country, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Yehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated him. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Ardon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So the wilderness is in the east, which is where the Ammonites are. And by the way, they were there at that time. So the Ammonites have always been east of this chunk of land we're talking about. 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people, and you are to take possession of them? In other words, God gave us this chunk of land, and we're giving it to you? Parenthesis, I don't think so. 24. Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? In other words, you got your own God. Whatever he gives you, you can go ahead and take. But our God gave us this chunk of land, and we're not giving it back. And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon in its village, and in Arar in its village, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? So it has been 300 years at this point since Israel conquered that chunk of territory. So what he's saying is, guys, you had 300 years. Why now? Okay? And the why now is because now it looks like we can. 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So that sets the table. Has anybody ever seen Henry V? Shakespeare's play. The version with Kenneth Bernal is really very, very good. If you're into Shakespeare, even if you aren't into Shakespeare, it's a great movie. It talks about the Battle of Agincourt and all that kind of thing. And one of the things that happens is when Harry becomes king of England, he sets his eyes on France. So he wants to invade France, and he really does. So he goes to his court staff and he says, it seems to me we should have some legitimate claim on this land. And his staff went back and do this research and they say, yeah, this used to be all of ours and we went over there and all that kind of stuff so henry says so if i make a demand on france i am being legal in other words i have got a legitimate claim to france and if i go over there and attack them i am not being a malicious invader i am simply reclaiming what is my own but the point is before he goes to war and takes his country to war against France, which he really wants to do, he's got to get assurance from the historians and everybody else that he has a legitimate claim. And he's not just being a bandit. And that's what's going on with the Ammonites. They are saying, we have a legitimate claim to this. We are not just random bandits that are trying to, I mean, they are, but... We have got this legitimate claim. And what Yair is saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, guys. That was two tribes ago. You don't have any legitimate claim. Our God gave it to us. You take whatever your God gave you and stay out of our stuff. But Ammonites, A, think they can do it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. And B, have set up what they believe is a legitimate claim. So we're all the way down to 29, I think. Then the spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizbah of Gilead, and from Mizbah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites and fought against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them down from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities and as far as abel karamim with a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, and besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord, Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity in the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made, and she had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So the first lesson, of course, here is don't vow something you don't know what it is. If he said first ox that I set my eyes on when I get home, it would have all been well. But he makes this what turns out to be a very foolish vow. And one of the things that people do is we tend when we deal with God to be grandiose. And we make these big flowery promises, and when it comes time to fulfill the promise, we often find that we are not very happy with the promise we've made, which is the case with Jephthah. The rabbinic literature on this, it is not biblical. So do with it as you choose. The rabbinic literature on this is what happened was since first off, God is unalterably opposed to human sacrifice. Israel gets into big trouble when they fall into uh, human sacrifice. And the countries that have human sacrifice get into trouble with God. So one of the reasons that God put Israel in the land of Canaan is because the Canaanites were doing that kind of thing. God says, I don't like that. I don't want that happening. So I'm going to get rid of them who are doing these abominations. I'm going to put you in there who know better. But unfortunately, Israel doesn't stay knowing better. So they worship other gods and they fall into all sorts of pagan practices to include child sacrifice. So the idea of God accepting a human sacrifice in this case is anathema to everything God is for everywhere else in the Bible. So that sort of thing one. So the fact that Jephthah has made a vow that turns out to be foolish would still not justify human sacrifice. And rabbis say this, and I agree with them, So what they say happened, and this is completely extra-biblical, it is rabbinic, is when it says she went up to bewail her virginity, what that says is she never married. She is his only child. So Jephthah and his descendants are cut off because of this foolish vow he made. So she never marries, she never has children, etc., but again, according to the rabbis, she is not in fact physically offered up as a burnt offering. sacrificing his grandchildren in the sense that they were never born. Let's finish up with Jephthah, so that'll get us into chapter twelve, and then we can go on to something else next week. So we're beginning of chapter twelve. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites? and did not call us to go with you. We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, anybody recognize this? Isn't this the exact same thing that happened with Gideon? So Gideon goes and he runs the Midianites off, and the Ephraimites come running up after everything is done and just really upset that they weren't involved. Now, the Ammonites have been there for 18 years right? The Midianites had been there for years and years and years. So I'm sorry, but I'm a bit cynical here. And what Gideon did is he basically buttered them up and flattered them. And he said, oh, you guys are so much greater than we are and all that kind of stuff. And that sort of mollifies them and they go back. Jephthah is not quite so tactful. But the point is the Ephraimites have done this now twice exact same thing and I am going to suggest to you that that reflects on the character of the Ephraimites not on the character of either Gideon or Jephthah so verse 2 and Jephthah said to them I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites and when I called you you did not save me from their hand and when I saw that you would not save me I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? In other words, I sent messengers looking for armies and you didn't show up. You only show up after we've won. And you're all grumpy because you didn't get the honor of the battle. I think there's a term for that in modern day America. It's called stolen valor. In fact, there's a United States senator that claimed that he's a decorated war veteran and never been out of the state of Massachusetts. Anyway, onward. Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Remember, Ephraim is the one that has the blessing of Abraham. Manasseh is the firstborn, but Jacob said, Yeah, 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 I know you're the firstborn, but Ephraim is going to be greater. So they've got sort of delusions, if you will. So they're calling the mill of Gilead, fugitives of Ephraim. Because Gilead, remember, is Manasseh, who is the brother of Ephraim. So they're saying, you guys are renegades. So you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, (laughs) they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. It's sort of like, talk like a Yankee kind of thing. How do you say y'all? How do you eat fried chicken? You'd fry chicken with your hands, except a Yankee eats it with a knife and fork. All sorts of little regional things that uh, served to identify. In this one, apparently, they had a pronunciation of the word shibboleth that was different than standard. One of them was not standard. I'm not sure which one of them was not standard. So anyway, uh, five and a half. Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So there is the story of Jephthah. The comment was that Jephthah For all of that made it into the faithful hall of fame in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews 11.32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty mid-war, put foreign armies to flight, which sort of lends credence to my personal belief that there was not actually a burnt offering made of his daughter.